Uh, we're going to start with music this morning, and it's the choir of Chester Cathedral and Graham Kendrick's Shine, Jesus, Shine. And here you heard the choir of Chester Cathedral with Shine, Jesus, Shine. 
Coming up on Heart and Soul this morning, we'll be hearing more from the late Les Brown. Uh, Malcolm Guyte continues his series on the I Am sayings of Jesus. Willie Wright will tell us a bit about the singer-songwriter Graham Kendrick. Uh, shine, Jesus, shine it was one of his, his songs or, or hymns. Towards the end of the programme, it'll be Adrian Plass. He'll be reading another chapter from his book, The Unlocking. Now, here is Graham Kendrick leading the singing at Spring Harvest a number of years ago, I guess. The song is one of his, All I Once Held Dear.
Hi, Graham Kendrick at Spring Harvest, leading with All I Once Held Dear, one of his songs. But it's over to David to introduce our next piece. Les Brown was a pilot with Mission Aviation Fellowship in East Africa. Les has written about his experiences in a book called It Just So Happened. Today, Les explains how God provided the resources he needed for the training required before joining MAF. It just so happened I had an anonymous letter. This letter arrived at a critical time, but I need to give some background before I tell you more. I had obtained my commercial pilot's licence but had no job, so decided to get on a train and go from Pitlochry five miles, 500 miles south of London to look for one. I found one, labouring in a chocolate factory. I like chocolate, but not that much. However, a life-changing event was about to take place. Labouring alongside me was another young man who was waiting to go into the ministry and who was keen to share his Christian beliefs. I had always been a religious person, but this was different. He showed me how God didn't want my religion. He wanted me. Eventually I was faced with the toughest decision of my life, to give myself, body, soul, spirit, to Jesus Christ, who had given his total self for my salvation, so that from then on I could live my life under his direction, or to follow through with my own ambition and plans, which meant flying aeroplanes, didn't occur to me that God had already been directing my life in this particular direction. Still learning. With a real sweat, I went for it. From that time, Jesus Christ has been my Lord and Master. I haven't always been a good and faithful servant, but I'm glad that he is used to working with rough material. It wasn't too long after this that I discovered the existence of Missionary Aviation Fellowship, a Christian mission flying light aircraft for missions working in very remote places in Africa. After making contact, I was invited for an interview in their office in South Woodford, Essex. They showed interest in my qualifications, but added, much to my dismay, that they required their pilots to have engineering qualifications also, and to have done a year at Bible College. I had no aircraft engineering qualification, and was not too interested in this skill, and of course no Bible college training either. Nearly two years passed working at the chocolate factory, and during that time I became part of a local church in Croydon. I must have shared with some people that one day I hoped to get into mission flying and commented that I first would have to do a Bible college training. The day finally came when I got flying work, and after further training, became first officer on DC-3 aircraft. That's the old Dakotas. Carrying 36 passengers to various places in UK and Europe. After another two years and having lost contact with my friends in the Croydon area, I felt God was pressing on my heart that I should go to Bible college. This was a real challenge, because I now had my feet firmly in the door of professional flying, and it was all forward and upwards. Anyway, I didn't have enough money to pay for a year at Bible College. 
God kept pressing it on my heart, Bible college. So I kept going back to my little bank book and knew there was not enough money, Bible college. Okay, I decided to apply to a Bible college, which I did, to start in a few months' time. What about the money? Well, a few days later, back came a thick envelope from the Bible college with application forms. In the same postal delivery, I found a letter with scrawly writing, postmarked Croydon. No address. Here is what this anonymous letter said, and I still have it before me. Dear Mr. Brown, I have heard that you are hoping to do full-time work for God, and that will, that will mean training, and that will mean funds. I have had some unexpected money given me. I feel God wants me to give you this towards your training. Please don't try and find out where this has come from. Just accept it from God, for it is he who has laid this on my heart to send it. God bless you, a fellow Christian. I had no contact with friends in Croydon for nearly two years and had not mentioned to anyone about my current, current thoughts of Bible school. In fact, I couldn't even make up my own mind in the matter. That kind of gracious person must have remembered my possible plans from two years earlier. Now, the gift in the envelope was £50 back then when it was sent. 2pm, 23rd of March, 1961, according to the post office date stamp. It must have been the equivalent of £500 in today's money, or even more. Enough to tip the balance, enabling me to pay college fees for a year. Later on, I earned enough during vacation time to pay for a second year. Now, it just so happened that this gift arrived at the same time as the application forms. Was God saying something? If he had sent the gift a week or two earlier, it would have been easy for me to simply fill in the forms, knowing already that I had enough money. This was a lesson that was going to be repeated again and again in the future, that God will provide if we are doing his will. We have to believe it. It would be lovely to say that I have thoroughly learned this, but I am a very slow to do so. I look forward to meeting this dear person in God's kingdom to say a big thank you. Before packing my bags for Bible college, I had been sub-based at Gatwick, doing flights with holidaymakers to the south of France. A few days after the start of the college term, the BBC News announced the crash of a Derby Airways DC-3 with 36 passengers and three crew on board during thunderstorms in the mountains near its destination of Perpignan. All on board were killed. The question has remained with me ever since. Would I have been co-pilot on that flight if I hadn't left to start Bible college when I did? I'm more from Les, Les Brown, uh, from his book, It Just So Happened Next Sunday. Uh, here's a song I'm sure Les would have enjoyed. It's the Sheffield Celebration Choir with Trust and Obey.
trust and obey, for there's no other way. And that was sung by the Sheffield Celebration Choir. Well, it's back to music, and this time it's Tim Hughes, and it is I Know That My Redeemer Lives.
And that was Tim Hughes with his updating of a hymn, which was originally written by Charles Wesley. Particularly the chorus has been added by Tim. But let's get back to David to see what's coming next. Malcolm Guite spoke at the Abbey Summer School in Edinburgh last year. On the last day of the conference, he talked about the I Am sayings of Jesus. Today we hear Malcolm explaining the inspiration behind the poem he wrote, based on Jesus being the light of the world. Of course, John's Gospel has so much at the beginning about light and life that when you read this verse, I am the light of the world, it's drawing on so much else. And of course, um, in John 8, the whole explanation of the blind man and how his eyes are open and all of that. It's extraordinary rich and I'm not going to go into all of that now. But when I came to think about how to write this poem, I actually what had struck me, it was just shortly before I sat down to write this poem, I was very fortunate to be at Westminster Abbey when um, finally England honoured one of her own prophets, or Britain, was in, and, and we had a stone for C.S. Lewis in, in Poets' Corner after many years of trying to make that happen, and it did happen, and that was wonderful. And Michael Ward, who had the scholar who made that, chose as the inscription around the stone for C.S. Lewis that famous quotation of his where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun rises, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That for Lewis, the light of Christ was not only an inner light that shone in his soul and like, you know, the fountain filling running, although it is the night. But that actually the more you thought about Christ and who he is, the more the whole Christian view illuminated everything. It illuminated psychology, it illuminated anthropology, it illuminated ordinary decisions and how things are in a family and, and the very beauty of the world itself. That the purpose of light is not to show you itself, but to show you everything else. And that Jesus is constantly doing that and, you know, letting you go from one so, so so I decided when I wrote this poem not to write really about the beauty of light in the world and to try to think of as many different ways and places in which the light shines on the beautiful things in this world and have them rather in the manner of George Herbert's prayer become emblems of something else so that's how this next poem works if you'd like to just read the passage for us then spake Jesus again unto them saying I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So I am the light of the world. I see your world in light that shines behind me, lit by a sun whose rays I cannot see. The smallest gleam of light still seems to find me or find the child who's hiding deep inside me. I see your light reflected in the water or kindled suddenly in someone's eyes. It shimmers through translucent leaves in summer or spills from silver veins in leaden skies. It gathers in the candles at our vespers. It concentrates in tiny drops of dew at times, it sings for joy. At times, it whispers. 
But all the time, it calls me back to you. I follow you upstream through this dark night, my saviour, source and spring, my life and light. And we'll hear another in Malcolm Gates' series on the I Am Sayings of Jesus next week. Just a reminder, though, that you're tuned to Heartland FM on 97.5 or the digital access channel, heartland.scot. Bridge FM, that's how you'll be getting us if you're in one of the hospitals in the Dundee area. But uh, by whatever means and wherever you are, welcome to Heartland FM and welcome to this programme. It's Heart and Soul with David Wilkie and me, Howard Simpson. Each of us are working from home and it's Sam Ross that puts the whole thing together for us. But we've got music now. Uh, This one was written by Tim Hughes. We heard from him just a little while ago. But it's sung here by Christine Dent and it is Light of the World.
Christine Dent, or Dante, I'm not sure. Uh, Christine Dent with Tim Hughes' song, uh, Light of the World. But let's see what David has for us now. Willie Wright was minister of Pitlochry Baptist Church for many years until his retirement. While here in Pitlochry, Willie produced a series of talks about hymns and hymn writers. Today we hear about Graham Kendrick. Graham Kendrick was born in Northamptonshire in 1950. His father was a Baptist minister, and so the young Graham grew up in a succession of Baptist manses in Blissworth, Landon and Putney. His first step of faith was as a boy of five. His mother had been reading a story to him, and when she'd finished, she'd asked her children if any of them wanted to be followers of Jesus and encouraged them to pray in their own words. Graham Kendrick recalls that he found a quiet place in the house, knelt down and prayed a simple prayer. Now, he didn't really expect to feel anything and was surprised when he did. And although he was so young, he seemed to sense that something significant had happened. After a series of spiritual experiences, not uncommon to those who grow up in Christian circles, the next major spiritual event took place when he left school and started teacher training college. His Christian life, he felt, seemed dull and lacking something. And as he read the New Testament, he longed to discover more of God. In particular, he read about what the New Testament had to say about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And he came into a deeper experience of God, which was to prove a turning point in his life, and to lead him into a new understanding of worship and the work of writing hymns and Christian songs. After a year as an itinerant musician, he was approached by a fellow called Clive Calver, and together with ten others they formed an evangelistic team called In the Name of Jesus. The team worked together for two and a half years, during which time Graham Kendrick met the girl who was to become his wife, and they got married in 1976. By this time, he had produced a number of albums, but already he was being drawn more towards congregational worship, and more and more he was being invited to lead worship in churches. He spent four years working with Youth for Christ, and then feeling that he needed to belong to a local church which would help to nurture him in his type of ministry and also share his views on the use of the arts, he moved to York to join the church of St Michael the Belfry. In 1984, he decided to focus all his energies on congregational worship music. Having seen some of the dangers of itinerant ministry, he felt the need to be accountable to a group of people in a local church and also to receive pastoral input into his life. During this time, he teamed up with a mime artist, Geoffrey Stevenson, and they toured colleges and universities with a unique and effective combination of music and mime. The Kendricks then moved south and linked up with the Ichthus group of churches. The church involved him in their plans for street evangelism and worship. Initially, he was not particularly keen on this open-air work. As he put it, embarrassing open-air meetings had prejudiced me. I also preferred a seated audience and a controlled environment because I wanted the listeners to think about the words. But at the same time, he was concerned that churches could so easily become inward-looking and he did desire to touch the outside world and reach out. So there was born the idea of creating music for the streets. And so it was that Graham Kendrick wrote Carnival of Praise, a set of street songs, which became the first make-way march. 
Suddenly, hundreds of churches throughout the land were taking up the concept, and a little over a year later, the songs were used as part of a prayer march called the City March, the event which later became known as the March for Jesus. Graham Kendrick continues to lead worship and encourage others in the leading of worship, and he continues to write his hymns and songs. He's written several hundred now. His writings cover a wide variety of subjects and are written in a variety of styles. He writes about the great truths of the Christian faith, about the cross, about Christian life and witness, about the incarnation. He sought to widen the scope of subjects covered in contemporary Christian songs. He's written about social justice, missionary involvement, and special songs for weddings and baptisms and communion and Easter and Christmas. And he's still writing. How much do you think he is worth, boy? Will anyone stand up and say? And tell me what are you willing to give him in return for the price that he pays? And yes, there's a good question. How much do you think you're worth? Uh, Graham Kendrick with his own song there. But it's over to David again for our next piece. Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today, Adrian talks about the need to depend on God in a piece called Trouble Without God. Trouble Without God Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you up out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery, I drove your oppressors from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. Now, it would be deeply irreverent of me to suggest that in any way we have God over a barrel, so I won't. But we have, really. I know he can be very tough and awesome in his power and strength, but he never gives up with us. He always wants us back, doesn't he? I don't consistently believe that wonderful truth in the front office of my head, but there's a heavy old file marked, God loves you, locked away somewhere in a safe at the back. God himself put it there, and he kept the key, so I wouldn't be able to get rid of it even if I wanted to. I have wanted to sometimes, but he's never let me, thank goodness. The Israelites had placed themselves in a prison of fear and oppression by their treacherous insistence on worshipping the false gods of the Amorites, but now they'd had enough. 
Like the prodigal son, they came to themselves and cried to the one true God to come and save them yet again. In response, God spoke passionately to them about their disobedience. And then, because he had never stopped loving them, he devised a rescue plan and sent an angel to Ophrah to begin putting it into action. I've placed myself into similar prisons over the years. I expect you have too. It's so easy to take the spiritual coin that God gives and spend it on things that he doesn't like and that are bad for us. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, our priorities change as the false gods of this age ease their fatly contented selves onto the thrones of our lives. The rot sets in. We become fearful and dissatisfied. There are too many enemies and we are too weak to resist. When we reach the bottom, we begin to wonder if God can possibly still love us when we have been so far away for so long. Tentatively, we reach out towards him, hoping desperately that he will reach out towards us. Is it possible to move from fear to love? Gideon's story says that the answer to that question is yes. But it also reminds us that God's rescue plans, including the most important one of all, almost invariably begin with something very small. Pray with me. Father, a lot of your old friends have moved a long way away from you. Some of them are listening now. Some of them are people known to us. Will you come back into their lives and help them now? They are very unhappy little Israelites indeed, Lord. Nothing is really going right in their lives. It's all hiding and defending and failing and despairing. They were mad to leave you out of the reckoning. We cry to you for them, Father. And could you please encourage them to cry out for themselves? We know that you will forgive them. We know that you miss them. We know that you yearn with all your heart to embrace them again. Something small for the lost ones, Lord. Amen. Adrian Plass reading from his book, The Unlocking. And that's our programme once again. Thank you for listening. Uh, our thanks too to Adrian Plass, to also to Willie Wright, Malcolm Guite and the late Les Brown for their contributions this morning. And here's Praise Gathering, the Praise Gathering Choir and Loved Before the Dawn of Time. <laughs>